Dear Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to Abraham. We thank you that you have confirmed your covenant with him and that it stands on the firm foundation of your word and your integrity. We thank you that throughout the generations you have continued to uh, explain more about how these covenants will come to be fulfilled. We thank you that it rests and depends completely on you to fulfill them. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. I've come to learn that I can't really ever say this is my favorite passage because every week that's my new favorite passage. But I really came to love this passage all the more uh, this week, especially as I personally, I think, understood better what's going on here. Uh, Genesis 17 has a tendency to kind of uh, get lost in Genesis 12 through 25 there, that story of Abraham, but it actually sits right in the very center of God's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. Between chapters 12 and 22, when we see the promise of this seed come, chapter 17 sits right in the middle of what's called a chiasm, or a, it's a big X where you've got top levels moving down into one central point. This is the center of this covenant, uh, giving this covenant to Abraham. Now this is titled here, the covenant provisions. And one important point to realize here is the covenant with Abraham has already been given. It's already been cut. There is no changing this covenant at this point. God is not here adding new stipulations that Abraham will have to do in order to receive this covenant. The covenant is already guaranteed. God is going to tell Abram here how he can experience the blessings of this covenant, how it can move from belonging to him to him experiencing it. And so the main point this morning is after Abram's faithless attempts to provide himself an heir, God speaks again after 13 years of silence. God had met Abram's obedience to be a blessing with an unconditional covenant but Abram quickly reverted back to disobedience. Failing to trust God's covenant, he and his wife Sarai abused Sarai's maid Hagar and produced an illegitimate heir to the covenant. God begins again with Abram, reconfirming and expanding on what to expect from his unconditional covenant, while also expressing his expectations of Abram to be perfect. And that's that's a high calling, and we'll look at that. And it does begin with a few commands towards Abram. And notice these commands do come before God begins talking again about the covenant. Genesis 17.1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now Abram is 99 years old here. This is quite old, especially not having children. You don't really expect that you're going to have them at this point. And so if it was hard for him to believe at 85 or 86, if it was hard for him to believe at 75, imagine how difficult it would be now to believe at 99. But this is the first time God has spoken to Abram, at least so far as it is recorded, in 13 years. This is the longest period of silence that we have recorded between God speaking to Abram. What Abram did in chapter 16 was a big failure. And it reminds us 
quite a bit of his failure in chapter 12, that he then returned to fellowship after abandoning the land and moving to Egypt. He came back to the land and he was faithful to separate finally from his father's household by separating with Lot. And then God spoke to him again after 10 years there. Well, here it's a 13 year gap. And all in all, this is 24 years after God first brought Abram into the land. 24 years of waiting for this covenant to be fulfilled. Each year, by human standards, it is less and less likely to be fulfilled. But by God's standards, the likelihood of it coming to pass is guaranteed. We also, just like in chapter 16, see a lot of names for God here. Moses refers to him as Yahweh. This is the name that God revealed to Moses. So when Moses is speaking of him very frequently, he will use Yahweh or Lord. And it says he appeared to Abram and he said to him. Now this isn't the first time he's appeared to him either. In fact, in Acts 7-2, we're told that before we even uh, have him in the land, before we see the first appearance in Genesis, God had already appeared to him. Stephen in Acts 7 says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This was how God first instructed Abram to move um, out of the land of Ur. And again in 12.7, after he came into Shechem, after leaving Haran, the Lord appeared to Abram again. And this is where he uh, set up an altar to praise the Lord. Now, in Genesis 15, this may be yet another instance of God appearing to him. And we looked at this in more detail when we studied it. But it says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. This isn't just speech. This is visual. Abram was able to see God who appeared to him. And in Genesis 16, remember, God did the same thing for Hagar. But God here addresses himself with a unique name. The first time he uses this name to speak of himself, this is one of the first names he reveals of himself to mankind. He calls himself here El Shaddai, God Almighty. Now this has a lot of debate about what this means, uh, mostly because there's two options. There's two possibilities, and both are pretty good possibilities. Well, first... God Almighty, El Shaddai, is made of two different names, El and Shaddai. We have seen the name El before. This is just the general term for God, specifically powerful one. This was a generic name used by all deities in the Mesopotamian region at that time in multiple languages. El or El was the the term God, just like we use it today. We've seen names such as El Elyon, God Most High, and Elohim, all-powerful one. This is his creator name. So we've seen names like this already. But he pairs it together with this word Shaddai. Now, Shaddai may come from this root, Shai, and Dai, meaning who is enough, the one who is sufficient. And this fits very well with our text. God is coming to tell Abram that he is going to fulfill a covenant to him. And what a better name could be had of God than 
I in myself am sufficient. In fact, that die enough has the idea of self-sufficiency in it as well. The second option also may be, and it comes from the Hebrew word shadad, conjugated with a yad, which makes it first person. I am powerful. This would be a little redundant, the powerful one who is all-powerful. But God's, God doesn't shy away from redundancy to drive home his point. So we either have God who is completely all-powerful or God who is sufficient. And I think both are true. Whichever is meant here is rather difficult to establish. But we understand the gist. God is able to fulfill this covenant. Abram is not. But God does have some expectations of Abram. This isn't the first time we've seen God give Abram direct commands either. When God gave him at first the promise of land and blessing and seed, he told him to separate from his family and to be a blessing. Well, here he tells him to walk before me or to walk before my face and to be blameless. Now, this term to walk can have a physical or a metaphorical sense. And here it does appear to have a metaphorical sense, but God uses it in multiple ways throughout Genesis, and it all seems to have this concept of fellowship with it, especially when added to the prepositional phrase, before my face. Abram's not to walk away from God. Abram's not to walk ahead of God. Abram is to walk there, right there with God. All the way back in Genesis, we see God in fellowship with man, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In Genesis 5.22, we see Enoch who walked with God, and he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. We understand that Enoch had intimate fellowship with God, more so than any of those patriarchs in the pre-flood era. God is calling Abram to that kind of fellowship here. It also has an interesting parallel with Genesis 15.2, when God first gave him the covenant, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I walk childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. God is here telling him, walk with me. Also in Genesis 24, moving forward to Abram procuring a wife for his son Isaac. It's interesting to see how he instructs his servant to go collect this wife. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow or to walk with you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. And then he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son, from my relatives and from my father's house. Abram here speaks to his own faithfulness and having remained in fellowship with God. Abram did not walk away from God. 
God, when he came to reconfirm this covenant, this is now the third time that Abram has fallen out of fellowship with God. Abram returns back to it and he is strengthened because of it. Abram is maturing in his faith. And yes, we see ravines in that mature, uh, the process of maturing, but we also see peaks. And each time we see him getting stronger and stronger in his faithfulness towards God because his faith is being built stronger and stronger. God also tells him to be blameless. Now, depending on what translation you have, you might have any number of words here inserted instead of blameless. Some other terms that fit the the word in Hebrew is perfect or undivided, whole, complete, unblemished, impeccable, sinless. Well, this isn't talking about sinless perfection. And we know that from how God uses it elsewhere in scripture. Genesis 6, 9, when we met Noah, it said these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. We see both of these concepts of walking with God and being blameless. He is in fellowship and he is not sinning, but also he was a righteous man. And this is how it began, and this is how it began with Abram as well. Remember, Genesis 15, 6, we're told that Abram trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram is a righteous man. When we get to the New Testament, we see that even Lot is a righteous man. Not because of his own personal righteousness, but because God has imputed righteousness to him because he believed. And so, Abram, just like Noah, is told to let that righteousness that is theirs positionally become theirs practically as well. To let that faith reach its end, which is obedience. In Job 1, we meet Job. And Job was probably a contemporary of Abram. We don't know exactly when he lived, but his life probably overlapped with Abram. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. This is the character of a person who is blameless. This doesn't mean that they don't ever sin, but this means that their dependence is fully on God, and they are obedient to God. Deuteronomy 18.13. God speaking to Israel through Moses you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Now, what did he spend all of Leviticus and half of Deuteronomy explaining? But the sacrificial system in order to take care of the problem of sin. And in fact, in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 30, we see that their sin is going to get worse and worse and worse in cycles until God is going to fix the problem. God is telling them to be blameless before the Lord your God. And the only way to do this is to let him make you blameless by cleansing you. Notice where this comes also in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy is a fascinating book. He does this very frequently. We have promises of priests. We have promises of kings. We have promises of a prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, 12, in the same context as him saying, be blameless before the Lord. He says, for whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. He's speaking of those who they're going into the land to dispossess. 
the people who were in the land of Canaan that they're supposed to go in and take the land from because they had filled up their cup of sin and the Lord was judging them. But what does he say a few verses later? He says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, like Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We see this fulfilled in the Gospels. This prophet who is raised up in the pattern of Moses was Jesus. How are they supposed to be blameless in the land? They're supposed to keep their faith resting on God. And God is going to raise up a prophet for them. He's going to raise up a king for them. He's going to raise up a priest and it is all the same man. This is how God is going to make them blameless. And they depend on his promise and he makes them blameless. Now this idea of blameless, it's tamim in the Hebrew, and we see a similar parallel in James 4. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you and draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, the problem in James is that they are not whole. They are divided. Divided in person, divided in mind. God is telling Abram to be of one mind. To be fixed on God, not dwelling in two worlds, not in the cosmos system and God's theocratic system but to have his faith solely on God. This is how Abram would be blameless and to walk before him in fellowship. Notice again, these are both imperatives. We've seen imperatives before where we didn't expect them in an unconditional covenant or in the context of an unconditional covenant, which doesn't have any conditions on Abram to fulfill in order to receive this covenant. But we do see them, in all cases, for experiencing these covenants. In fact, the entire Mosaic law was put in place for the purpose of having Israel experience their covenants prior to being regenerated in spirit and in body. How do you give sinless people eternal, unconditional covenants? They'll continue to sin. They'll continue to be imperfect. And if you give them something eternally perfect, they either corrupt it or they can't keep it. In this Abrahamic covenant, we have the promise of land, seed, and blessing. And blessing is so important because the fulfillment of the promise of blessing is how God keeps seed and land to Israel. Without that promise of blessing, without the new covenant, Israel has no hope of an eternal promise but only a temporary promise so long as they are faithful. And that is not the covenant given here, but an eternal promise and being regenerated is part of that promise as it gets revealed. So here we have another important distinction to make. In Genesis 17, 2, God does not say, I will cut my covenant between me and you. He's already done that. Establish, I think, is not a good word to use for this. In fact, there are three different words used for making a covenant in these two chapters, Genesis 15 and 17. 
in all three cases, they use the same word establish. The first one, I think establish is fine. God establishes this covenant with Abram. He cuts this covenant. They make this covenant. But here, God is not saying that he will make a covenant that is a new covenant, but rather he will fulfill the covenant that he has already given to him. This is the Hebrew word Natan. We've, we know Nathan from the New Testament. His Hebrew name means given or to give. What God is doing is he is going to give this covenant to Abram, not in belonging, but in fulfillment. It already belongs to him. He is showing him here how he will fulfill this covenant to him. Back in Genesis 15.8, we see it was cut or made with Abram. The second promise here is, I will multiply you exceedingly. We have two commands and two promises. Just like in Genesis 12, two commands with promises interceding. Go forth or separate from the world and separate to God. And I will make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great. And go and be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is starting over again with Abram in his new state of fellowship. He's calling him back into that fellowship and he is reconfirming the promises that he's already given to him. And he's promising him, I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. Remember in Genesis 13, 16, he says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. This is exceeding multiplication. In 15, 5, he says, if you can count the stars, so shall your descendants be. I'm pretty sure it's just as impossible to count the stars as it would be to count the dust of the earth. In 16.10, God speaking to Hagar, who has now born a child to Abram. God says, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. When you count them, you have to count them by multitudes. You can't count them individually. There's too many. These are Abram's children. These are Abram's descendants. We'll see here some expansion of the results of this covenant. Some of them have the appearance of being good, while they might not be so good. And some of them have the appearance of not being so good, while in fact they are. So we'll dig into those. But what was this very first purpose of God in creation? It was that he would establish a man who would rule over creation in subjection to God's will, and that he would multiply, that he would be fruitful, that he would fill the earth, the land that God had created, that he would subdue that land and that he would rule over it and its inhabitants. God is recreating his creation in a microcosm in Israel. And he's going to work with Israel throughout all of world history so that at one point he can elevate Israel above all the other nations while Jesus sits as king in Israel from the throne of David. And that is how God is going to vindicate his creation. And so he is doing in Israel what he did at creation. He is establishing man in the land obedient to God. 
with Noah as well, after God destroyed the earth that then was and placed him in the present heavens and earth. It says that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. These are all imperatives. These are commands. God tells Adam to do this. God tells Noah to do this. But he tells Abram, I'm going to do this. I am going to make you exceedingly fruitful. Abram's response here is much different than in Genesis 15. When God promises Abram something that sounds impossible, he doesn't say, Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? His response is, Okay, but how? Or he said, Oh Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? This time, Abram fell on his face. Abram didn't question God, How are you going to do this? It doesn't look to me like this is possible. He just says, okay, this is trust. This is Abram having matured over 13 years from the last time we saw him. Well, at this point then, God begins to elaborate on the details of the promise that he gave him in Genesis 15. And the whole process of unfolding the Old Testament and even the New Testament is in unfolding this one covenant, this one covenant called the Abrahamic covenant with the promise of land, seed, and blessing. In the Pentateuch, the question of the land is elaborated into great, great detail. And the land begins to be taken in Joshua and in Judges, but ultimately they fail to do that, and they're exiled, and they return to the land. They're scattered, and we know that they will return to the land. In fact, Matthew 24, 24, Matthew 24, 30 says, God is going to gather them from the heavens and the earth and to bring them back into their land. Well, in the histories of Israel, the seed line is developed so that in both 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles, we get this reconfirmation of the Davidic covenant, the seed line. The seed is going to come through this royal line. We see it fulfilled in the Gospels when Jesus, the rightful heir to the throne of David, is born. The new covenant is elaborated in the prophets in the prophets, because Israel is out of their land because of this disobedience under the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law sits as a placeholder in that new covenant blessing. So that Jeremiah tells him, or records, that the new is going to come in and replace the old. And that is how Israel is going to be faithful. God is going to be faithful for them. And he's going to make them faithful by giving them a new heart, by regenerating them. So here, for the first time since giving the covenant, God begins to elaborate on how he is going to fulfill this. God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Now here, God begins a pattern that he's going to continue through the rest of this chapter, chapter 17. Here he says, as for me. And from here through verse 8, he is going to discuss 
what he is going to do to fulfill this covenant. Starting in chapter or in verse nine, God is going to say now as for you, Abram, this is God's expectations of Abram of how he is supposed to live before him and be blameless. In Genesis 17, 15, God's going to say, as for Sarai, your descendant is going to come through her. In verse 20, he'll say, as for Ishmael, he's going to multiply him exceedingly too. Because Ishmael is not a party to the covenant directly. He benefits in the same way that other nations will benefit from the gift God gave to Abram. He will be blessed through Abram, but not as his descendant of the seed line. In 1721, God is going to tell Abram, my covenant I will establish or give with Isaac. He is going to fulfill it through Isaac. But he does tell Abram here, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Now there's two different words that can be used for nations. There's the goim and the amim. Goim has the idea of political entities with rulers, with kings. People can enter into this, this goim and be part of this nation. But then there's the amim, the ethnic families. You have to be born into these families. Well, God here is using the term goim, which through the rest of the Old Testament usually refers to Gentile nations. Yes, the nation of Israel, the Amim of God, is going to come through Abram, but also the Gentile nations, also these political entities. These will also come through Abram. This is an expansion of the promise in Genesis 12.1, where God says, I will make you a great nation. He is going to do that still through the seed line. But Abram is also going to be the father of other nations that are not party to the seed line. First of all, the Ishmaelites, those who dwelled between Edom and Midian. This was through Hagar, the maid of Sarai. After Sarai dies, Abram is going to take another wife named Keturah. And through her, he'll be the father of Midian, and Midian will be the father of the Midianites. These would be some of the first people they encounter when coming out of the land of Egypt. And Esau, from Isaac by Sarah, he'll be the father of the Edomites. These are already three political and national entities that are going to come from Abram that are not fulfillments of the Abrahamic covenant. None of these are the seed line. But through Israel, through Jacob, by Isaac, through Sarah, so here already we have four political entities that are going to come from Abram. Now here's where the promise of nations coming from you may not be such a good thing. Where a nation coming from Abram would have been a better promise. But Abram stepped in and did things his own way. Not only do we have the Ishmaelites, Midianites, and Edomites, which become perennial enemies of Israel, continually attacking them not only in history, but even today. But here as well, even through the seed line of Israel, there's more than one nation. This has been a problem since 
since just after Solomon. This is a problem that Jesus himself will fix when he reunites Israel under one king. But this was a problem from unfaithfulness in Israel, from faithlessness. They divided the one nation that God had created. Nations come from Abram. But God had intended and had Abram been faithful for one nation to come from him, the nation of Israel, the nation over which the Messiah would reign and rule to restore creation. God here also gives Abram a new name. And finally, I will not have to remind myself every time I speak of Abraham to say Abram instead of Abraham. Still got another week or two before I can call Sarai Sarah. But remember in Genesis 12:1, he says, I will make your name great. Now this may have the sense of elevating him to a stature of nobility. People will often come to this verse and say, well, the three great religions of the world all look back to Abram. And while I struggle to say Islam is a great religion, uh, it is a very large and dominant religion. But I think this has more of the idea of Abram being made great through the promised seed line. In Genesis 17, 5, he says, no longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram comes from two Hebrew words, Av and Ram. Av means father and Ram means exalted. Now this isn't Abram's own exaltation. He was named this as a child. And when he was a child, he was not a father. But he did have a father who was most likely, it appears from scripture, royalty. Royalty of a sort in the old world sense. Terah became the father of the exalted father, or my father is exalted. He named his own son after his own exaltation. Remember when God tells Abram to leave his father, or to leave his family, to leave his country, and to leave his father's household. We wonder how is that different from leaving his father and leaving his country? Well, because he's leaving this royal line behind. He is leaving greatness through Terah to be made great by God. And so no longer is his name going to reflect his earthly father's greatness, but his heavenly father's greatness. Now, there is frequently a mistake made in discussing Abraham's new name. We look at it in English and we say, God added an H-A. God added a huh to his name. And in fact, I've heard an entire sermon, possibly even two, preach that God here is giving Abram the Holy Spirit. Huh. He's just breathing it on him by adding an extra H. This is not what is happening in this text. Not at all. And this is the danger of honestly making things up. It sounds good. So I'm going to run with it. It preaches well. That's not what's going on here. God is not adding an H right in the middle of his name. He is adding to the end of his name. Rather than inserting the hey right in the middle, he's got the av beginning, and then the ram gets shortened to ra. 
so that he can add an ending on it, Haman. And this is also shortened to just Ham. So we've got Av, Father, Ram, exalted or exceeding, and he adds to the end of it, crowd or multitude. Abram, the father of an exalted multitude. We have, I, it, I, I don't think it's even just a tendency today, but we like to ignore what the words mean and divide it up into letters and decide what it means because the letters have special significance that the Bible doesn't tell us. If you've ever heard of the Bible codes, they'll do this. They'll break up all of the words that actually mean something into something that means nothing, and then they'll make their own meaning from it. This is what they've done when they take Abram's name and say, it's just the Holy Spirit. So his name, father of an exceeding multitude or an exalted multitude. And he says, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. This is his reasoning. And when God gives a reason for why he's given somebody a new name, that reason is how we need to interpret their new name. And he's going to expand on this a little bit more. He says, I have made you exceedingly fruitful. And it's, it probably is not here a perfect tense in the Hebrew, but a present with the idea of future. I am making you an exceed, or exceedingly fruitful. He says, I will make nations of you. And the kings will come forth from you. Abram is the father of a new royal line. Yes, there is the seed promise, the promise of a Messiah, but that promise was never a royal promise before. It would replace Adam, who was the ruler over the earth, but who lost that rulership. And he is now restoring that promise here through Abram, the father of a new line of kings. In Genesis 49.10, through a prophecy that Jacob gives, says the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The kingly line through Abram, through Isaac, through Jacob is going to pass through Judah. Even in Numbers 24, the prophet Balak prophesies that a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter or that royal staff shall rise from Israel. The king that the world expects, he's coming from Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, 14, God tells them, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Stipulation one, one from among your own countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. The kings that come from Abram will be kings in Israel. God is making sure that Israel, when they come into this land, don't adopt a king from outside of Abram's line. Because the kingly line of Israel is leading to the Messiah. In 1 Chronicles 17, the Davidic covenant given to King David, the king in Israel whom God chose. 
He says, when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. Once again, he is not going to establish a kingdom. God is going to do it for him. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. That's why in Matthew 1.1, when we're introduced to Jesus in his kingly line, we're told that he's the son of two different patriarchs, the son of David and the son of Abram, Abraham. Then he goes in and gives us some more details, but this delineates who the Messiah is and his right to the throne of Israel because kings would come from Abram. And here we see the two great kings of Israel, David, whose throne God established and Jesus, who God sets on the throne of David forever. Now we've got just two verses left here and these two verses are very parallel to one another. But we've got to talk about a very important term, the term everlasting covenant. But first, we want to make note that here is another time where they have used the word establish, but it's a different word in the Hebrew. In Hebrew here, this is, I will comb my covenant or maintain, persevere. It is not on Israel to make this covenant work, to make it last, to make it continue. That is on God. God is upholding this covenant. God is maintaining this covenant and God will fulfill it to Israel. This covenant is not just between God and Abram, but it is between God and Abram and all the descendants that come after Abram. The generations of Israel today are a party to this covenant. This belongs to them and God will fulfill it through them. Through all of the generations that were cast out of their land, or going back all the way to the Exodus generation, the first generation that came out, they weren't allowed to enter because of disobedience. In the generations that were hauled off into captivity, they were hauled away because of disobedience. In the diaspora after the Gospels, they were sent out into the world because of disobedience, disobedience to accept the king of God's choosing and to enthrone him over Israel. But God has promised that he will bring them back. He will put in them a new heart. They will receive their king. And God will fulfill this covenant to Israel. He says it is, a, it is established or maintained throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. Now we do ourselves no favors when we just belligerently say, Everlasting, or this term olam, means eternity. Because it actually doesn't. This promise is an eternal promise. This promise is an everlasting promise. But our argument doesn't come from the meaning of the word olam. And for that, I'm probably going to have to convince you. Olam is a term meaning to the end of an age. When we use it in the context of eternity, for example, the eternal state, and when we say eternal torment is olam in comparison to that eternal state, well, when olam means to the end of an age and that age has no end, then olam means eternity. 
the eternal torment, the olam torment that people will suffer in the lake of fire is eternal because our eternal state lasts forever. And it is parallel to that. But here we've got an age, the age of this earth that has an end. And you know what happens when it's fulfilled in the kingdom? This earth disappears. This earth vanishes and God makes a new creation. And you know what happens if we force on Olam the mean of, meaning eternity, then God breaks his covenant the, mo the moment this creation disappears. The moment that the physical land of Israel is gone, which it will be, but God is bringing a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem would break God's covenant with Israel if Olam means eternity, meaning endless ages. But here is why Olam here means that this land, as long as it ever exists, will always belong to Israel. Because God has promised that while the fixed orders remain, God will maintain his seed, Abram's seed. And while this seed remains, God will maintain the covenant. God has tied this covenant together with Israel, and he has tied Israel together with this earth to say, if one goes, all go. We can state it in the form of a soliloquy, which is a logical process used for stating truth clearly. It has two if-then statements and then a therefore. So here, if the earth remains, according to Genesis 8.22, then God will maintain his fixed orders. Therefore, the fixed orders are olam, everlasting. If the fixed orders remain, then God will preserve Abram's seed. Therefore, Abram's seed is olam, everlasting. If Abram's seed remains, then God will maintain Abram's covenant. Therefore, the covenant is olam, everlasting. As long as you can look out into the sky and see stars, as long as you can look out onto the earth and see dust, as long as you wake up every morning and this earth remains, Israel's covenant belongs to Israel and God is maintaining it. He is holding it up and he will fulfill it to Israel. He's not going to transfer the deed to a nation that's not a nation and say, here, I'll give it to this church because Israel failed. If God does that, then he's a liar because he broke his covenant with Abram. And God is no liar. But now we see the aspect of blessing in this covenant because so far we have focused mostly on the promise of the land possession and of the seed. And even in Genesis 15, when we're dealing directly with the Abrahamic covenant, it can be hard to see where is the blessing in this covenant? Where is the concept of blessing? We said three things, land, seed, and blessing. Blessing is the necessary aspect of this covenant to make land and seed work. And so when God promises to maintain this covenant through all the generations of Israel, he says that this covenant that he maintains is to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And this is the concept of blessing. 
This is the concept of restoration, the basis for God giving the land and the seed. Because there is another one acting as God over this world. 2 Corinthians 4.3 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what happened at creation, where God imposed his will over creation and told man to rule according to his will. And man said, I'm going to move my will to Satan's instead. I am going to do the will of Satan rather than doing the will of God. Do you know what man did at that moment? He made Satan as God to himself. In Isaiah 14, in Satan's demonic manifesto, one of his I will statements is, I will be like the Most High God. You see, Satan's goal is not to be the new administrator or ruler of this earth, but to rule over its administrators. Satan cannot create. Satan is not a god. Satan is not Elohim, the all-powerful creator god. All he can do is corrupt and steal. And he has stolen this position over the hearts of man. But even Satan knows that this role over the hearts of man is not good enough. This is not what God has. If ruling over the hearts of man isn't good enough for Satan, we shouldn't make it good enough for Jesus. Jesus will rule physically on this earth, but not before Satan tries to put his own ruler on this earth to rule physically over the kingdom of this world. And so what God is promising to Abram is restoration so that the God of this world will not be like God to them, but that the one true God of Israel will be elevated as God. John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He says, And I, if I am lifted up from from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And this he spoke of his crucifixion. Well, in Exodus 19.5, we see God again speak of this promise of being God to Israel. It says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. This is God giving the Mosaic covenant to Israel so that he will be as God to Israel. Their obedience will be tied to his and he will restore this theocracy in Israel in a microcosm, just as he had intended over all of creation. And through Israel, he is going to restore this theocracy to earth. He continues then in Exodus 29, Verse 45, and he says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. And this is what it means to be God over a people, is fellowship with them, dwelling with them. This is the goal that we are looking forward to. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. 
I am the Lord their God. Again, we see this in a microcosm throughout Israel's history. The Shekinah glory, the visible, physical presence of God dwelt among the children of Israel from the Exodus all the way to the exile when it was taken away because of their disobedience, because they were not living in the face of God blameless. And in John 1, verse 14, the word becomes flesh and he dwelt among us. God, visible and physical, dwelled among his people for another 33 years here. With the promise of it being an eternal dwelling and an eternal reign, if they would be faithful to their covenant with God, the Mosaic covenant, which is not unconditional, it is conditional. And one of the stipulations of that covenant is that they install the king of God's choosing. They refused him. They sent him out. He was not God to them. In fact, that was their big issue. One of their big issues was the accusation of blasphemy, that he was equating himself with God. Well, he was God. He is God. Revelation 5.9 then, when we're in the heavenly throne room, God is about to restore creation to his theocratic ruler, Jesus Christ. And what does he say? It says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, not a holy nation, because this is not Israel. This is the church. And they will reign upon the earth. Jesus will reign over Israel. Israel Israel will reign over the nations and the nations will reign over the earth. This is how God restores his creation. And the goal of it is to dwell among his people, to restore the fellowship that was lost in the garden, where God created beings for fellowship, not just among each other, but with him. Creatures created in his own image given his ability for communication, for friendship, for love. These divine attributes were given to man in a finite portion, not just to enjoy among themselves, but to enjoy in relationship with God. Revelation 21.3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle or dwelling of God is among men. He will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. That is all the fixed orders of the previous earth once God has fulfilled his covenant. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things anew. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. He is restoring an intimate fellowship that was lost in the garden. And he does it through the Abrahamic covenant. 
He does it through Abram. He does it through Israel. He does it through the Messiah. God cannot use another nation any more than he can use a different savior. He is restoring cursed creation through the land of Israel. He is restoring life through the seed. He is restoring broken relationship through blessing. Now, he has a parallel paragraph at the very end of his promises here to Abram. He says, I will give, again, Natan, to you and to your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. He continues to be more and more specific. This time, though, he doesn't give specific borders. But he tells Abram, all the land that you've been wandering in, this is going to belong to you. All of the land of Canaan. And he says again, this is an everlasting possession. So long as this physical possession exists to be possessed, it belongs to them. Only in the new creation, when God is making all things new, after this has been fulfilled to them in the kingdom. But he says, I will be their God. This is, I think, a great place to end because he is God to us. We have been regenerated in spirit. Our physical bodies await physical restoration. And at that time, what does Paul say? So actually, that's in Hebrews. To be, oh no, that is Paul. To be absent from the body is to be present where? With the Lord. Our physical presence will be transferred to his physical presence. But even now, as Paul says in Ephesians, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Our fellowship with God is unlike any other age in all of history. This is why I think replacement theology is just ridiculous. This is one of many reasons. With all of the wonderful and amazing blessings that Israel has, I would not trade my place in the church to be part of Israel. Because Israel is still awaiting the fulfillment of their promises, where we have already become parties to the new covenant. We already enjoy restored fellowship with God. And we longingly wait for the day where we see him face to face and we are transformed into his likeness. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your promises to Abram. We thank you that you made him the father of a multitude of nations. We thank you that you have fulfilled through him the line of the kings so that Jesus, the Messiah, was born as the rightful heir to Israel. And we pray for the day that Israel will be elevated above the nations, when Jesus will rule in righteousness on this earth, when you will be vindicated in creation and you will be glorified above all. We long for the day that we see you face to face, where our presence will never be separated from yours again. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus, through whom all of this has been fulfilled. We praise you in his name. Amen.